Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the War Games Orchard with Nathan and GJ. We've looked at the mass combat, now it's on to the role-playing. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show, it's GJ, and today we're going to take a second look at the first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Battles. We're going to take a look at the other two books that came in the box last time we discussed Volume 1, Tabletop Battles, and now today we are going to take a look at Volume 2, Magic, and Volume 3, Characters. Though not in that particular order, and uh, you will probably see why later on. However, before we do that, it's time to take a look at news and hobby. Not everybody needs a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing, and it was everything that I thought it could be. I'm afraid I don't have much news to report, at least not on the Games Workshop front because I'm recording this episode a little bit early, even though I'm going to release it at a regular time, or sort of semi-regular time, uh, but I record this episode last Saturday. So by the time you hear this, there will probably be some new news out there that we can discuss in the next episode. There are some things in the community that's worth taking a look at. We've got our um, April paint challenge up. Uh, today is April the 1st, so that's the uh, uh, the official end of the March paint challenge, the pirate paint challenge, pirate themed. We are not going to uh, announce a winner for the simple reason that, well, there were a lot of people, uh, at least some people that said, well, maybe you should probably don't do this with a winner because the same people are always winning. So yeah, let's not make it into a competition, but more of a challenge. So we've already mentioned Jim Bob with his uh, anti-pirate one-eyed Carl, the blunderbuss expert with a question mark in brackets and former Stir River patrolman. Uh, Bruce Sigrist, he put up the uh, dwarf pirate Yagrog Loot Smacker. Jörn Huntler has since been adding his entry to the list. Uh, Sir Daria, he is a leader of the spear wielding swashbucklers, a wood elf mercenary regiment traveling the high seas around the old world. So, um, this guy is a buccaneer on a. Uh, he started his career on a, as a buccaneer on a mundane float on the river Grismary. Um, and then he was uh, drawn in by the promise of romance and gold. Um, many wood of younglings soon joined his banner and now his dashing regiment is feared by merchants and husbands alike. Uh, lovely touch there, Jörn, and a lovely entry as always. Uh, these are all beautifully painted models. Uh, well, except mine, because I don't think mine are that good. I will announce uh, my model here. This is uh, the great Garibaldi, or James as his mother named him. He was a performer, a showman, and he knew that 
piracy wasn't about swordsmanship or naval prowess or stuff like that, but it's mostly about looks. And a good pirate wears an eye patch, he has a hook for a hand, he walks around on a back leg. So if a good pirate has all of those things, zombie logic dictates that a great pirate has two of each. So he modified his body to have two back legs, two hooks for hands and two eye patches. Of course that presents some problems, so I gave him a seeing eye powder monkey uh, named Fido. He will guide him everywhere he needs to go, which usually involves the nearest banana brain. Um, that's, that's my entry over here, uh, it got at least a laugh react, which is what I was going for. So thanks everybody for participating in this challenge. And I'm going to look forward very much to what you are going to put out for the April challenge. And the theme for the April challenge is April Fools. And you can of course interpret that any way you feel like. Now, other than the paint challenge, I would also like to uh, give a shout out to Thomas Wood, who put up some pictures of his Zinch Path to Glory warband. Uh, these are really nice models. Uh, not only are they are they nice old school old hammer models, but they are also painted in that very vibrant look and feel of old hammer. Uh, the models look some, somewhat goofy and, and out of proportion in and of themselves, but then the paint job with bright yellows, blues and purples, the swords um, and, and, and axes and all the weapons, uh, almost all the weapons, are they, they have a gradient from uh, red at the base or the hilt uh, to more yellow and white there's some gems and some toadstools on the bases uh, awesome models awesome paint job go check them out uh, thanks thomas for sharing as of my own hobby progress i have finished the finished basing the ogres uh, the no sorry ogre singular uh, I finished painting him yesterday, I finished basing him, and I also finished uh, basing the beastmen that I did, the regiment of 50 bestigors uh, with a full command and a, a an extra champion that's going to be a hero, and some minotaurs, a few minotaur characters, the plastic minotaurs, uh, looking forward to doing the metal ones this month. I had originally planned to do them for last month for the Call of the Crown, but well, um, time got away from me a little bit. So yeah, I'm going to save them for this month and then I'm going to see how I'm going to finish the rest of the challenge. Uh, it's two more months now, so we've got April and then May will be the final month. Uh, there are some other things I want to do as well. And one of the things I want to do is to recreate the scenario that was in the volume one tabletop battles of the first edition um i read th through this and i was uh, inspired to to try this out for myself um for the scenario you need a lot of goblins well as an auction goblin player i have those you also need a Hobgoblin Chieftain. I happen to have one of those as well. It's been uh, painted, uh, not by me, but by someone else, to a very decent standard. I might make some modifications there. I, I, the base still needs to be painted. 
and uh, I can also add some hobgoblins for which I have some 3D files, so I'm going to print them. And then you need dwarfs. At least two of the dwarfs need to have a bow or a crossbow. Now I didn't have any crossbow dwarfs at the ready, so I built two of them from my um, from my unbuilt dwarf regiments. And that also made me realize that I thought I had all the dwarfs in my collection that I wanted or needed, but I probably still need a few more crossbow dwarfs. Uh, uh, by the way, if you hear some gurgling sounds in the background, I, I'm not sure if the microphone picks it up, but uh, I do wish to apologize for that. That's the dishwasher that's been uh, running here in the kitchen. I'm recording in the kitchen now, and I turned on the dishwasher earlier. I, I didn't plan to do an entire podcast now, but uh, yeah, I thought I might as well if I'm going to record a little bit anyway. So yeah, I've got the dwarves. I got goblins, uh, or, or most of them, sort of them. And... I've also got a pyramid, a, a stepped pyramid, a ziggurat that I had made for my lizardman. Um, my lovely daughter Lizzie helped me to paint it up with uh, the, um, with some large brushes and uh, and some uh, basic hobby store paint. Not, uh, of course, the more expensive 12 milliliter Games Workshop pots, but just your regular uh, acrylic paint. So what I needed now was some stairs and some rubble. Uh, the stairs are going to be 3D prints. I found some and I scaled them and I've been uh, printing off a couple of those. And I'm also going to make some rubble the old fashioned way out of bits of uh, polystyrene, I believe it is, uh, the, uh, the isolation uh, material XPS. And I'm going to then uh, cut it a little bit with uh, uh, with, with your uh, um, oh, what are they called? Not pliers, not tweezers, but the uh, uh, the, the the little cutting tool. Uh, the, uh, the yeah, the the one that uh, the Games Workshop also sells, but that you can also get at any hobby or hardware store. The one that you use to cut the miniatures from the spruce before you clean them up with a knife. Um, the name escapes me now at the moment. It will probably come back at some point. I hope it will come back at some point because if names keep escaping me for extended periods of time or, or if this happens more often, then I should probably go see a doctor. So yeah, I have a ziggurat. I need some uh, some dwarves uh, to... I need to paint some dwarves. I need to paint the stairs. I need to make the rubble pieces. I need to paint some hobgoblins. When I have that... I will probably uh, play the scenario just by myself, playing both sides. I might even try to record it and to see just what's going on. And if I do so, I will probably put it up either on my own YouTube channel. I do believe I have a YouTube channel. I don't think I have a hobby-related YouTube channel yet. So I might... I've been thinking about starting one of those, but I, I think about starting lots of projects and then don't see them through. So, um, either that or on the Wargames Orchards Patreon. That's uh, one thing that I have been doing and, and planning and, and that I've been getting busy with. But the reason I wanted to record today, this early in the week on Saturday, is because I played a game today. And the game I played today was a game of Age of Sigmar. And I promise you, this is not an April Fool's joke, because if it were, then I would say that I enjoyed it very much and I'm now leaving Warhammer Fantasy forever. 
<clears throat> no, um, quite the opposite is true, actually. Well, uh, I did enjoy the game. Let's let's start with that. Uh, we played a four-player game. I was at a, um, a small gaming club. Uh, there was some some new guys, some some friends, uh, friends of friends that had been invited. So I played with a, a father and a son and a, a third person. We played a four-way battle. At first, we th- thought of doing a three-way battle, but then. The other guy showed up. He wanted to join in as well. And um, the battle was on a, what, I think 4x4 table, something like that. And we each deployed in one corner. And each of us had a an objective marker in the deployment zone. And that was one final objective marker in the very center of the board. So... The other players had, uh, well, the factions we had were um, Sylvanet, which in Warhammer Fantasy terms would be Forest Spirits. So you got your Dryads, your Tree Man, stuff like that. Uh, you had the Iron Jaws, I believe, the, the Black Orcs. So a, a couple of units of Black Orcs with a big big boss or a war boss on a Wyvern, the, the, the big plastic kit. Then you had the Caradron Overlords, which are the flying dwarfs with the, zepp- the zeppelins and the balloons and stuff like that. Uh, the steampunk dwarfs. And I played Nighthaunt, which are spirits and ghosts and banshees and stuff like that. So um, we, we, we were uh, limited by time and... Few guys that we, a few of us, we, I had never played before. I, I played one game, but this was in a different edition and I wouldn't have known the rules anyway. And the other guys, they played occasionally, but not too often. So it was a lot of looking up rules and stuff like that and seeing what happened. Um, we did have fun. We did, we did have some, some nice situations. I, uh, Uh, One of my character flaws is that I can come across as a little bit arrogant. And knowing that, I sometimes also play into that. So, uh, feeling superior, vastly superior as a Warhammer Fantasy player um, when playing Age of Sigmar, I made some nice calls, which... and the dice complied. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to make these two saves on a 6 or on a 4 or something like that. And, And... the dice listened to me. They didn't always do that, but the times they did, then that well, yeah, that was fun. So, um, how did the game go? The I I uh, I'm going to talk to to you about uh, about this from from my perspective. So from my corner, uh, I was at the bottom left corner, and the dwarves were at the bottom right corner, and at the top left were the wood elves uh, or the the forest spirits, and at the top right were the orcs. So the first thing that happened was that the Wood Elf player, he got the first turn. Uh, That meant, going clockwise, I had the last turn. And we we only played two turns each. So the Wood Elf player, he he moved forward a little bit. And then he got attacked by the Orcs. The Dwarves moved forward a little bit. I moved forward. I attacked some of the Dwarves. Then the guy on the wyvern basically single-handedly wiped out most of the wood elves by himself. So uh, the dwarf player and I, we looked at each other and we said, well, we need to take care of this thing. And then when it was his turn, uh, he said, well, 
no, we're not going to have to take care of this thing because the game is almost over. We can only play until this the end of this second turn. So uh, then we both raced for the objective. And he had gone forward so far that he, he had lost his own objective. He was out of 6-inch range of his own objective. But he did capture the center objective. So then I thought, well, what am I going to do in this final turn? I, I don't really have any, many spells that are good for me. And then I saw I have one spell that allowed me to teleport. So I teleported my, my wizard, uh, Lady Olinder, the... Uh, um, uh, well, she, she got the name Mortark, the Mortark of Grief. Uh, but, well, she, she's no Mortark of mine, of course. So Lady Olinder, she teleported to within range of the uh, dwarf objective because he had left it. And then I moved my own spirits forward so that more of them were within six inches of the center objective than the dwarf player had. And I also held my own objective. So I won the game by holding three of the five objectives and... I felt a little bit dirty doing that because I didn't play the players I played I played against the rules basically. I know well this is this is going to be a two turn game. So by the end of turn 2, the only thing that matters is who has caught the most objectives. I didn't move forward, I didn't attack anything in the last turn, which I would have or I might have if I had known that the game would last a little bit longer because this is a situation that I could never have held um, having my general apart from the rest of my troops, having um, no uh, uh, all of my troops out in the open, no no support or anything there. So yeah, that was uh, it, it was it was it was it was nice to play a game, but yeah, there are some things about Age of Sigma that just they don't work for me. They they don't. Give me that feel of this is an an epic or an exciting battle that is happening. And, and it doesn't need to be epic in the sense of skill. I mean, I can also have a lot of fun playing Warhammer Skirmish or Mordheim. And some of those battles can be decided very early on. But still they feel different. They feel more, more epic in a sense. And, and this might just be... Me, the old grognard, talking about how everything was better in the good old days. But there is a definite sense of that for me. And I think when I was driving home in the car, I had half an hour to, to listen to podcasts, to reflect on the day and, and reflect on the game. And there were a couple of things that I noticed. And one of them is that in Age of Sigma, every... Uh, every unit you buy, you buy as a unit. So, for example, I had uh, four Banshees, and you can only buy them as a unit of four. You can't give them any upgrades. So, well, some things can have upgrades, but there are, there are not really a lot of options there. And you see the same thing, not just with the rules, but also with the models. Uh, the models, they go together. Well, you, you get different options for different weapons, and that usually means that you can make uh, two or three different units from one box set. Nothing against that. But this game doesn't inspire you to convert your own stuff. It, it's just... 
this is the model, this is a picture of the model, uh, this is a picture of the model is next to the rules of the model, and they are always the same. Um, I'm not going to say that Age of Sigmar players are not creative. I, I know they, they are and they can be, and especially when making terrain you can be. Uh, but and you see also something of like that happening at, at near the end of Warhammer, near 8th edition, where uh, a lot of the special a lot of the characters were special characters so they had they, they came just the way that they were um the terrain that's described in the back of the eighth edition rule book is just yeah you use this plastic set games workshop produces and that's this uh it's terrain piece it's got this these rules um if you want to have a forest you need to have this uh, specific type of forest from games workshop if you have to have watch if you want a watchtower you need to buy this watchtower set so th that was already there, but compared to uh, the early editions of Warhammer, the, the ones that have captured my heart the most, which is, uh, I think, 4th, 5th, and 6th edition, mostly 5th and 6th, that's the time when I started. Yeah, those editions, they encouraged you to be very, very creative. And especially also in the old-timer editions, uh, getting to know them a little bit for this podcast... Uh, th there's almost on every other line it says uh, well this, this, this is of course a major exaggeration but th there are a lot of opportunities to be creative it only gives you some some basic guidelines and you have to fill in the rest you have to make the game by yourself so yeah that that's one of the things i noticed that age of sigmar doesn't have and that's something that uh discourages me from buying and playing the game another thing that discourages me from buying and playing the game is that i don't want to buy all those new books and i must say those books i, I they look very good they're in full color like the eighth edition books there's a lot of pictures in there of the actual miniatures painted to the uh, very good heavy metal standard there are uh, there's a logic logic to them that you definitely didn't have in 7th edition Warhammer Fantasy. We start by some background and then you get uh, painting rules and you even get some painting guides. It's something that's, that also disappeared from the Warhammer Army books in 7th and 8th edition. Uh, so I'm glad they brought that back at least. And then you get the different rules for the, uh, for the factions and... You even have uh, sub-factions, I didn't know that, so for example I played Nighthaunt and the Nighthaunt are subdivided into four different sub-factions and each sub-faction gives you some extra rules to all of your models and it gives you also some limitations as to which models you can and, and cannot use. Now I don't know how this is for 40k, but if Age of Sigmar in, in this respect is any indication of how Warhammer the Old World will be, then I am definitely hopeful because this is a a good way to make an army book. Um, what's also good about Age of Sigma is that the rules are rather easy to get. There, there were still a lot of rules and I glanced over them briefly before the game. Um, but the the main rule book, the rules in the main rule book are very condensed and concise. So yeah, that's good. Uh, you, you just need to read a couple of pages. It's not like uh, you have to read um, 120 pages just to, to know everything and then also the rest of the army books. 
Um, having said that, there are also a lot of rules in the army books themselves, some army specific rules, some extra rules for your sub-faction, and then of course each of the units has their own rules. It's not like you have Empire Halberdiers, which only have the rule that they are uh, state troops, and then if you look at state troops you know what that means, or if uh, you have orcs and goblins you have uh, your regular orc arrow boys, and they only have the rules for orcs that, that are animosity and chopper your general army rules, but each of those units also has some special unit specific rules. So there are a lot of places that you have to check and look back at to see uh, to, 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 to learn the rules. And this is for a new player who's playing against three other players at the same time. Um, and this can be a little bit discouraging. So yeah, my head was a little bit overflowing with information at the end of that. But well, going back to my car drive home and my reflection, I think that the main reason I dislike Age of Sigmar is that it just doesn't hold up a candle to Warhammer Fantasy. And I still resent Games Workshop for ending Warhammer Fantasy in favor of this. Now I know that is not rational of me and uh, I, I probably should look at the game for what it is but there's still this nagging feeling that yeah they made some 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 lame lazy abstract of what Warhammer Fantasy could have been uh, they, they gave it some uh, rules that were made to be understood not by dedicated and well, more or less professional war gamers, but rules that were meant, made to be understood by uh, children. Can I say that? Well, yeah, nothing against kids, of course, but th this is just Grumpy GJ and, and, and Grumpy GJ's uh, hurt feelings speaking. Uh, there are some wounds from uh, almost 10 years ago that have not yet healed, and Age of Sigmar is uh, definitely one of those wounds. So I hope that Games Workshop will do a very good job with Warhammer the Old World because they've got a lot to make up for in my opinion. Well, let's leave Grumpy GJ for where he is for now and let's take a look at some simpler times, uh, maybe even some happier times. I don't know, I wasn't born yet, but something that will make Crumpy GJ happy again, which is Warhammer Fantasy, first edition in this case. So let's jump into our time machine and head back to 1983. We're on our way back to 1983, the year the release of the arcade game Mario Brothers in Japan. It will pave the way for more games in this franchise. But who needs Mario when you've got first edition Warhammer Fantasy?
Welcome back everybody to 1983, the year Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was released. The subtitle of Warhammer, as I mentioned in the previous episode, is The Mass Combat Fantasy Roleplaying Game. Uh, like I said in the introduction, we looked at the Mass Combat section in the previous episode, but we, are, but we haven't looked yet at the roleplaying aspect. And we're going to do that by taking a look at the final two supplements in this book. Well, they're not supplements, the, the, the books in the box. The final two books in the box. Volume 2, Magic, and Volume 3, Characters. And I'm not going through them in the correct order because magic is tied in heavily to characters. You first need to create a character before you can have it use magic. So that's why we're going to start by taking a look at characters. The book opens with an introduction about role-playing. Now I'm going to assume that most of you are already familiar with the concept of role-playing. You have a couple of players, you have a GM, the players they play the game and the GM, the game's master, he makes the scenario and he, he plays the monsters and the stuff that the players will face. He will give them the opportunities and the players will have to find a way out and uh, act within the story that the game's master is uh, is telling. That's just basically what you do in a role-playing game. So there's a little bit of introduction about that. What are the roles for the game's master? Which roles do the players have? And then it opens with player characters. Each player character has three sorts of characteristics. There are the personal characteristics, and the personal characteristics are things like social status, age, sex, intelligence, cool, willpower, and leadership. Then you've also got your fighting characteristics, and these are the things on your profile, uh, the things that we discussed in the last episode. They are in a little bit of a different order than they are in the uh, Tabletop Battles rulebook. They are number of attacks, number of wounds, initiative, weapon skill and bow skill, your strength grade, toughness and move. And then the final one is skills. Um, you can have various skills like uh, trapper, sailor, conman, pickpocket. There's even a skill called transvestite, um, which is probably not very politically correct in these times. But well, uh, we're in 1983 today. Um, you've got, uh, th these are rolled on a D100 table. Uh, a character's skill will depend upon his previous experience. And like personal characteristics, they should be interpreted by the GM. So... What do you do with these skills? That's basically up to the GM. Then we get to character generation. And character generation is uh, very much role-playing. If you have ever played Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, uh, which I haven't, but I have rolled up a couple of characters using the first edition Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay book, um, it's very similar to that. So first you start by generating characters. On a 1 to 3 you're a human, on a 4 to 5 you're a dwarf, and on a 6 you're an elf. Then you go to the characteristics, you roll a d100 for the social status, and the higher you get, the higher your, uh, your level is. So if you're for a human, if you roll a 0 to 50 you're a freeman, 51 to 70 you're a bondsman, 
71 to 80 you're a burger 80 to 81 to 90 excuse me is a citizen then you got 91 to 95 knight 96 97 earl on 98 you're a duke and on 99 you're a prince and dwarves and elves have similar tables except that uh, dwarves have a much higher chance of being a house serf and then the next one up is uh, on 80 plus noble and then you get kinsman prince or royal prince elves they have a 90% chance to be a free elf and in the last 10% you get counselor elder or prince then you get something about the age for humans you roll 66 plus 6 for elves is 26 plus 20 and for dwarves uh, sorry that's for dwarves and for elves it's 3d6 plus 20 so dwarves are generally older than elves in this um, a lot older than elves in this edition uh, you will start off with one wound uh, the initiative is for all races d4 humans add one and elves add three then you get web skill and bow skill you roll 2d6 for that and then you have to uh, decide which of these is your primary fighting skill uh, men and dwarves tend to be swordsmen elves prefer to specialize in the bow and elves choosing to be bowmen may add plus two to the um, to the the number that you roll so you get a number between uh, one and six depending on what you roll on 2d6 uh, that's a little bit confusing. So if you roll a uh, a two on your two d six score, you've got a web skill or bow skill of one. If you roll three to four, you got a two. If you roll five to nine, you got a three. Uh, so it it goes up like that. And then for the secondary fighting skill, you roll a d six and subtract two, and uh, that is going to be your secondary fighting skill. So web skill and ballistic skill are determined in this way. And strength, you roll a d6, and uh, depending on what you are, you get uh, one or two for men and elves, or two or three for dwarves. Toughness is something similar. You roll a d6, men and elves get b or c, and dwarves get b or c, but dwarves have a higher chance of c, and men and elves have a higher chance of b. Your move rate will be given in the creature list. Which is, if I say this by heart, uh, three and a half for dwarves, four for men, and I believe it was five for elves or something, and four and a half for elves, I believe. Um, so, so it's it's in that range somewhere. Uh, you roll one d four minus one to determine the number of skills your character has, and then you roll that d one hundred table that I. Uh, mentioned before if a skill is rolled twice the gem can assume that the character has a second level in that field uh, then you roll for uh, no you don't roll for age but you have uh, levels for maturity uh, men are mature at 18 and death is at 60 for elves it's 24 and 160 and for dwarves it's 32 and 240 so uh, yeah, elves definitely don't live as long as dwarves, so that's not very Tolkienian of them. Intelligence, men 1d10, elves 2d6 plus 2, and dwarves 2d4 plus 4. Cool is 2d6, and for dwarves it's minus 2. Willpower, men 1d10, elves 2d6, dwarves 2d6 plus 4. Leadership, each races, all races roll a d6, half the score rounded down. And depending on your status, you can add one or two. 
uh, your number of attacks starts as off as one. You get some money depending on your social status level. And yeah, then you are set to go. The next section is about character advancement. So as you roleplay, you gain experience points because you do things. The GM awards them is usually for stuff like killing monsters, but also for roleplaying, you can get experience points. For solving puzzles, you get experience points. And depending on how many experience points you get, um, you, can, you can do things with those. You can uh, increase your stats. There's a section here that starts off with a section about uh, what you want to do. If you want to continue as a fighter or if you want to become a wizard. Uh, you need to do that before you start accumulating experience points. And if you want to become a wizard, you have to roll some extra stats. So a wizard will need a uh, constitution. And the constitution is equal to your willpower plus 2d6. You also need a uh, life energy level, and the life energy level is uh, dependent also on a roll. Men get d10 plus 200, and dwarves and elves get 2d6, uh, sorry, not plus times, d10 times 200, and dwarves and elves get 2d6 times 200. And as we will see in the magic section, this is something that can... Basically, your life energy is, you start off with a, with a finite amount of life energy, and when your life energy is, runs out, you, you die. Usually, this happens only because of old age, but if you cast spells, life energy can drain faster. So, uh, wizards, on average, live shorter. Uh, that's why you need life energy. You also need a, um, a wizard mastery level, and your wizard mastery level is 1, but you must have an intelligence of at least 5. You choose one level 1 spell to begin your career, so you're a one-trick pony if you start out as a wizard. Boy, it sounds fun to generate a character in this way. Tell you what, I am going to do exactly that, but not for this podcast episode right here, right now. I will randomly roll a Warhammer Fantasy 1st Edition role-playing character on the Patreon page. So if you wish to hear how that goes and whether I will be a man, a dwarf or an elf and which my social status is going to be, uh, you can listen to it on the Patreon. And this is a good point for me to tell you that our Patreon is uh, non-tiered, so you can join us for as little or as much a month as you like. We're going to put out some bonus content over there, such as this character generator. And I will uh, try to put out some more content there. We haven't always been the best at... Uh, catering to our patrons but we do appreciate it and we do appreciate your continued support for this channel and we will definitely try to put out some more stuff there such as this so if you want more of the Warhammer first edition apart from the articles and stuff that I'm going to discuss anyway please take a look at our Patreon page. Our Patreon page is uh, patreon.com slash wargamesorchard or if you just search for wargamesorchard patreon then you can also find us there. Alright let's get back to the book. 
after character generation there is something about experience points it will tell you what, what, what will happen if you are a fighter for example and you capture an enemy you gain double the points for the uh, that, that you would normally get uh, if you uh, the, for each kill the fighter will receive the number of points equal to the monster's strength grade and creatures with a toughness of D count as double points, E count as triple points, F count as five times as many, um, at s no not etc because it only goes to F. A gem may award additional points and those additional points are things like killing an enemy hero or leader so, so all of these things get you experience points. Then, if you have accumulated a number of them, you can advance. If you have accumulated 50 experience points, you may advance initiative. If you have uh, 100, you may advance your secondary combat skill. So if you are a fighter, you will probably choose a uh, weapon skill if you are a dwarf or a man, according to the book. So then you have to advance your ballistic skill, your bow skill. Um... Let's see, I'm not sure how this works. I don't think you, you buy these things. So it's basically you accumulate experience points and as soon as you reach 50, you get initiative. And as soon as you reach 100, you advance your secondary combat skill. Uh, Wizards also, they have an, an experience table and that is, uh, for example, constitution or a new spell or a mastery. And at some point, sometimes also you can choose uh, it may advance any of the above. Um, wizards can gain extra experience points through clever and successful use of magic. That's all up to the GM and there are some, uh, some penalties. If you cast a spell wrongly, it will cost you 1d6 times 10 experience points. Characters have some maximal levels. Uh, they cannot advance any one fighting characteristic indefinitely. There are maximum values given. Uh, for example, you can only advance your toughness grade as a dwarf to D and no higher than that. Uh, you can only advance your primary skill as an elf to 10 uh, and your secondary skill as well. Initiative level can go up higher to uh, 10 for dwarves, 20 for men and 24 for elves. And your uh, wounds and attacks can also go up to a certain maximum which is uh, somewhere between 3 and 6, depending on your race and the stat. Now, what's also important in role-playing is your alignment. The alignment is, um, uh, I believe it is role... Uh, no, it's chosen by the player. player must choose that character's alignment. And the alignments are good, neutral, evil, avarice and hunger. A good, neutral and evil you will know if you have played, for example, D&D. But instead of Lawful and Chaos and instead of a Matrix, you just get two extra alignments here, which are Avarice and Hunger. And each alignment, depending on what you have, will give you bonuses. Uh, unless, of course, you're neutral. Uh, good aligned characters receive double experience points for slaying evil characters or monsters. And evil characters or monsters receive double the points for slaying good characters or monsters. Um, if you as a good player slay a good character then those are a negative experience but if you are evil and you kill another evil character then you don't get any 
and evil guys even get trouble points for killing or harming their friends and relations. So if you're evil and you need experience points, just uh, stab a party member in the back and you will get over that threshold. Avarice. Uh, avaricious characters receive no extra experience points for acts of courage, bravery or self-sacrifice. They receive double points for any money they acquire. So uh, yeah, you have to get some money. And hunger. The hunger alignment is common amongst the less intelligent monster types. Hunger aligned creatures may only have one in only have one interest in life: food. Characters with a hunger alignment are rarely encouraged, uh, encountered, excuse me, and are usually easily recognizable because of their great obesity. Food-oriented characters receive quadruple bonus for slain opponents that they eat. And um, the GM should. Uh, Exert his influence to prevent characters acting against their alignment. So a good character should not go around brutally torturing captured opponents, stuff like that. And the gem should always reward extra experience points if the player acts particularly in character. There's a table then on the next page where you can randomly generate the alignment of anything you encounter in the creature or monster list that we saw at the back of the... Warhammer uh, Tabletop Battles book, the, the first volume. And then there's a section about injuries. And uh, this is a little bit more like what you expect from a game of uh, more time and indeed role-playing games. So what happens is that if you uh, if you're full complement of wounds is lost so if you start out with three wounds and you lose three wounds then you're dead but with long running campaign adventures more detail is needed when the player is killed roll a d100 usually the result will be that rather than being killed outright the player has suffered some form of injury so, for example, if you score between a uh, 1 and a 42, you get a light wound and anything from a 43 up is a severe wound. And depending on the number of you roll, you get, for example, a concussion, a wound on your one of your arms, on the leg or, or, or your head, uh, a wound in your eye you can have. You can be out of action for a number of turns ranging from... Let's see here, four to no one to twenty d six, and the time to recover can be um, uh, from none to one week, two weeks permanent. There are some effects, and on the seventy plus, it says here that you will be out of action for one d six turns. The time to recover is permanent, and the effect on recovery is dead. So it's basically you're bleeding out. Uh, and that there's a risk of death, which is a percentage, uh, anything between 1 and 69 is uh, from none to increments of 5, it goes up. No, not, not really, there's one eighteen percent So uh, there's none, 5, 10, 15, 18, 20, 25%, and then you are dead. Uh, you can be out of action for a number of turns, uh, which speaks for itself. Uh, time to recover, that's the length of time needed for the injury to heal. Uh, that also speaks for itself, the effects, that's what happens when, with you during this recovery time. 
and uh, risk of death this is the percent of chance that occurring during unconsciousness if you have, are receiving medical attention you have the percentage so for example if you have a pharmacist available it goes on to a an example about Rothnik, a mad hacker, Redbeard, a Norman of some repute who has just slaughtered 23 orcs. He has taken two wounds, then he meets another orc and he suffers his last wound, but he's out of action. He rolls a 27 on a D100 score, he's got a light leg injury, uh, he's for 66 uh, or 18 turns unconscious. Uh, and well then uh, uh, at the end of the period you roll another d100 to see if he lives um, and then well Rodnick will have to be careful in the meantime in his two weeks of recovery because if he receives one more wound he will be out of action again and he will suffer further injuries then there's a section about creating adventures there are some ideas listed including uh, which I also mentioned on the uh, unboxing video on the Patreon rescuing a lovely Italian princess so apparently Italy in this day and age was still part of the Warhammer world uh, the, you get a list like an assassination, capture someone, explore an unknown region or island and it ends with or anything you like um, harking back to what I said earlier in the podcast uh, be creative um there are some things, things here that the GM will have to do. This is your basic role-playing stuff. Uh, you get a table with costs. What What does a sword cost? You get something about the monetary system. You have a small gold coin weighing a quarter of an ounce. Uh, that's a, uh, a gold piece, a, a, a crown, I believe it's called. Yeah, a crown. A shilling is a smaller silver cup. Coin, 20 shillings to a gold piece and a penny as the smallest coin of brass 12 pennies to a shilling and then something about the notation so it goes C for the number of crowns and then pennies and uh, shillings are divided by a slash symbol there are some rates of pay you can do some actual work other than adventuring and uh, there are some rates here in a town of about 5,000 people if you for example work as a laborer you can gain 5 crowns per week and you get a 30% chance to find work for a duration of 1 to 6 weeks. Then we move on to the encounter charts and this is just what you expect. Um, there are some, everything here is determined by dice rolls. So, so when you travel as players you have to have an order of march. So who's in front? Then the GM... Um, will decide the direction of the approach of the encounter there's a d10 table listed here um, and then you get a lot of tables which are all uh, percentage charts and uh, depending on where you are if you are in the marshland or in a coast you get uh, for example if you if you are walking along a coast uh, you roll once per day, and if you roll a 0 to 73, there's no encounter. If you roll 74 to 76, you get 2d4 orcs, or you get some harpies, or ogres, or elves, or men. Um, and if you roll 96 uh, or higher, I guess, you encounter one dragon. Uh, there's some subterranean tables here. Table 1 and Table 2 is there. There are also some things that are, well, this is just the gem's discretion. Oh, it goes on Table 3 even. 
and then goes on to enchanted objects. These can be magical weapons, these can be named items, stuff like that. There's also a D100 table for that. GM should use their discretion in placing enchanted objects. And um, then you get the, uh, the tables for these objects uh, later on and you get another scenario here, the Red Wake River Valley. This is a role-playing scenario. There are no tabletop battles here as far as I can tell. Uh, this, is, this is just, uh, you need a GM and you need three other players. There's a little bit here about the uh, scenario and what you can do a little bit about the map and the, uh, the surrounding countryside, uh, what the players should know. And then there is a section what the players should not know. And that's for the GM, so I'm not going to read this. Uh, there are some things here about uh, uh, encounter chances, stuff like that, what's in which specific terrain. There are maps for a tower and for the dungeons beneath the tower. And it ends with the, um, yeah, the what well, it ends over here. So uh, did I say just now that there was also a chart with magic items, with enchanted items there? Because if I did say so, I have been mistaken because that's all the way back in volume two magic. Speaking of which, if you have got, uh, rolled a character and if you've decided that he is to be a wizard, you need to um, roll your spells and you need to know about how this works as a wizard. So, wizards come in four different levels. One, two, three, or four. The title for level one wizard is novice or initiate, for level two is acolyte, for level three is adept, and for level four is magician or mage. Keep that in mind next time you face your opponent with a level one scroll caddy. Uh, these uh, titles, of course, can, can differ depending on a, a certain mastery that you may have or a certain uh, direction that you're going in. Um, wizards have three additional stats that fighters don't have. These are mastery, constitution and life energy. We talked a little bit about those and, and how you get those. Uh, constitution, what it does is it basically depends how much magic you can expand before being exhausted and unable to continue. So this is your, your, your mana level to say it in uh, Diablo terms. Life energy. Uh, I already explained a little bit about that. You have a large but finite amount and if you run out of life energy, uh, you die. Casting spells. Spells have six different characteristics here in this game. Each spell, uh, spells are cast in the magic phase of the active player's turn. And each spell has the characteristics time to prepare, talismans, spell level, energy, time to rest, and remarks. So time to, re time to prepare says that the wizard has to remain motionless for a number of turns, and those are the active player turns. So if you have a spell that takes two turns to prepare, you cannot move for two consecutive turns before you cast it in the magic phase. And if you have a spell that is one turn to prepare, I guess you just stay stationary in your ma movement phase and then uh, cast a spell in the subsequent magic phase. Talismans, these are things like um, well, what, what I called on the 
Patreon video uh, spell focus in Dungeons and Dragons. These are things that you need to cast the spell. For example, you need uh, something personal, a staff or a wand. You need a, a silver room ball. You need certain amulets or certain uh, filters, which are potions. You might need a scrying glass or a pure relic. These are all things that you can roll up on the enchanted items table. And if you don't have the item, you basically can't cast the spell. The spells have a level uh, going from 1 to 4. These correspond to the mastery level of the wizards. The higher level spell is harder to learn and to cast. A wizard may not normally learn or use a spell that has a higher level than his mastery level. But there are exceptions if you have a special talisman and charmed objects. Uh, energy is how much the spell costs and the, the point is deduced from the wizard's constitution and from your life energy. Uh, for a normal game it's important to know what the constitution is but in a campaign with a longer game you have to keep track of the life energy drain as well. And then you get time to rest. This means that after casting the spell, the wizard has to remain motionless in the own player movement phases, just as for time to prepare. But this is just to, to rest up a little bit from casting the spell. And the sixth characteristic remarks, this just basically says what the spell does. Uh, there's something here about innate magic abilities. Uh, wizards have some abilities which are magical sense. If you as a wizard touch an object which is in some way charmed or affected by magic, you'll be able to sense this. There is also the trance of magical awareness. A wizard in the magic phase may enter into a trance. You expend one constitution point for each move spent in this state. But if you do so, uh, or if uh, you can also remain motionless of course, but if you are in this sense, you in this in this trance, you will be able to sense any magic items being used against him, and uh, or any magic used against him. Excuse me. So spells also, and a rough direction of all other wizards within 48 inches. And I'm guessing those are 48 table inches. Uh, the trance does not inhibit the wizard's ability to move, fight, or perform other magic. But well, if you move, you have to spend Constitution points. And then magical attacks, um, you can try to enhance your own magical attacks. This is basically what you get in 5th edition and 4th edition. You cast a spell, you add power to it, and uh, this also ties in with ability number 4, annihilating attacks, which is what in later editions would be called dispelling. So what you do, as a, if, if a wizard casts a spell, he can, for example, say, um, the example given here is Fireball. Fireball costs 2 energy per bolt. But you can increase this to 3 or 4 per bolt if you wish as a wizard. The spell doesn't have more effect, but it will become harder to annihilate. So if you annihilate uh, an enemy wizard, they can spend energy points to, uh, to, to counter the spell. And if the number of energy points is equal to half or more the ones used in the attack, then the spell is annihilated and has no effects. So, for example, if I wish to cast a spell with a power of 2, and I decide to increase it to 4, then my enemy has to spend 2 energy points to dispel it. The way you do this in this game is you both write the number of, ex of energy points that you wish to expend on a paper, and you hand the papers to the GM and the GM will say if the spell passes or not. 
And then there's also something funny, which is the fumble factor. Uh, the fumble factor is a chance that a spell fails, um, I guess, more or less catastroph catastrophically. What you do is each time a certain situation arises, um, which is casting a spell of a higher mastery level, or if you are wounded, or if you are attempting to cast a spell that you just learned, then you roll 2d6 before the spell is cast and you apply a modifier. For each wound suffered by the wizard, you add 4. For each, uh, if this is the first time the spell is cast successfully in a real combat situation, you add 4. If the spell is 1 level higher than the wizard mastery level, you add 2. Uh, you add 3 if it's 2 levels higher and 4 if it's 3 levels higher. If the total score is 13 or more, then the spell has gone wrong. The game master must now take over, interpreting the result as outlined below. You roll a d6, on a 1 to 2 the spell affects the wrong person. You have to roll again, on a 1 to 3 it affects the wizard himself, on a 4 to 5 an ally or friend, and on a 6 some other foe, determined randomly uh, who is hit. If that first d6 roll is a 3, the spell has the opposite effect, so blessing counts as curse, bloodlust causes the subject to become pliant and passive. Uh, that's fun for the GM to interpret what would happen, for example, if you cast a fireball. I guess it will be then uh, ice or water or something like that, a splash of water in your face. Uh, the wizard has cast some completely different spell on the roll of 4. If you roll a 1 to 2, it's a spell of a lower level, a 3 to 4 of the same level, and a 5 to 6 of a higher level. And then you have to randomly generate that spell, and on a 5 to 6 the spell has no effect at all. There's a little bit about wizards and characteristics, and it says you have to read the next book for that. But um, yeah, that's uh, we just read it, so that's why I read it before that. Um, it goes on to say a wizard may not normally learn sp spells with a spell level greater than his mastery level, but occasionally books or talismans will be encountered which offer simple methods of approaching high level spells. So I guess something like uh, reading a scroll, uh, reading a spell from a scroll, something like that. Uh, I might be completely mistaken here. You might, it might be something that you learn. Um, there is a, a subsection of wizards, which is uh, necromancy. And necromancers, they control undead creatures, but it's a specialized form of wizardry. Uh, there are others, such as elementalists, it says, to become any kind of specialist wizard, the, you must first master the fundamental principles of magic. So that means you forfeit learning. Uh, uh, you forfeit the learning of one spell. Usually, you, you you when you advance, you can learn one spell at some point. So you don't learn that spell, and thereafter you may uh, learn spells within the specialty that you've chosen. Um, but you must learn a spell of each level, starting at the lowest. Uh, and that's it does go on to say here further supplements to Warhammer will cover specialist magic in detail so I guess that this is a already when they were printing this they were thinking of forces of fantasy which is the first supplement and the only supplement to fourth uh, to first edition then we get to the section where you randomly generate spells you roll a d10 to determine the mastery level. Um, if you have a magical character that you wish to use as a GM, this is not for your player characters. You roll something for the constitution, the speciality. 
and uh, then the number of spells available and then you determine the personal fighting characteristics as laid down in book three um am i reading this correctly let me see here real quick let me go back to on that uh, a particular scenario or encounter may call for a magical character to be used or if the character has not been prepared beforehand then this system can be used to quickly generate such a character okay so yeah this is not for players but this is to to generate enemy characters enemy wizards um yeah and then we get to the spells lists uh level one two three four spells the, those are a d100 table and then you also get uh, necromancy level one two three and four spells also on a d100 table uh, these are the spells randomly generated for your uh, for your non-player characters because players they choose the spells they wish to learn and these spells are not so much the spells that you encounter in later editions of warhammer fantasy at least not the, the tabletop battles variants but these are more of the role-playing spells that you encounter in games like dungeons and dragons now there's a little section about necromancy only evil wizards may become necromancers and the necromancer has the power of summonation and control of the dead uh, dealing so closely with death drains wizard life energy aging and twisting him and reinforcing his evil disposition each time a necromancy spell is cast deducts twice the amount indicated from the wizard's life energy so your life energy goes down twice as fast it is a specialty so you have to forfeit a normal mastery level rise to experience then you may learn your first necromancy spell and uh, yeah then you can proceed to choose either learning normal spells or necromancy spells uh, and in addition to the magical awareness they may also act as controllers to units of friendly skeletons and zombies within 12 inches that's an added bonus to being a necromancer you can control the undead then after the necromancy spells you get a list of enchanted objects these are numbered from 1 to 20 uh, not 1 to 16 i'm sorry and uh, some of them are subdivided for example you get the uh, what they call the talismans the, the the wizard focus things they are subdivided and these are just your your magic items they do things you got for example niobe's torch which is a 40 centimeter rod of polished mahogany if struck against stone it will magically light and burn indefinitely it gives us as much light as an ordinary torch they may only be extinguished by immersion in water but may be extinguished as uh, and relit indefinitely uh, you get something like magic weapons which is subdivided into uh, different i don't know how many of these are not numbered but different magical weapons and some of these magical weapons are basically built your own thing there's, there's something here like uh, unique magical weapons wizards try to produce at least one enchanted weapon sometimes in their lives and then you get a weapon uh, which is an enchanted weapon so uh, counts as the full effects against undead gods and demons types and then you also get things that give you extra attacks or initiative or less attacks or initiative or strength poison fear stupidity 
Something that flashes brightly when orcs or goblins are near. Uh, going back to Tolkien there. Um, yeah, and also some named magic weapons. Yeah, that's basically the end of this volume 2. There's a 4 inch di diameter summoning pentacle in the back that it says you can cut out, but you should probably photocopy, or at least I say you should probably photocopy and not cut into these old um, relics of Warhammer fantasy. So with this, we conclude our look at the first edition basic box. Uh, it gives us three books with enough information to play the game. In the next episode, we will not immediately dive into the supplement Forces of Fantasy because between the release of Warhammer Fantasy 1st Edition and Forces of Fantasy in 1984, there have been a couple of White Dwarf articles that we will look at first. So that's what we're going to do in the next episode, or at least the next episode in this series. There might always be a, an, a, something that comes in between that. And as I had said in the first episode, I'm going to take White Dwarf as my guideline to tell you what has been released in which month. So at a certain point, we are just going to take a look at White Dwarf. And then I'm going to just say, well, in this month, we had these releases and uh, we had uh, these articles and maybe go, go a little bit into the articles. It, it will not be as boring as I presented now, or at least I hope it will not be. So uh, the pace will slow down a little bit over time because a lot of material has been published, but we will... Try to take a look at anything and everything that has been published about Warhammer Fantasy, or at least the things that I know and can find and can get my hands on. Although I can guarantee you already, I will not have been able to have read everything by the time it is discussed, especially when it comes to the novels, for example. Um, I will not be doing book discussions in this podcast because... I, I, although I own many of the Warhammer Fantasy novels, I still haven't started reading them. Uh, I will also not be doing army book reviews uh, or, or in-depth rules reviews such as these. I'm, I'm basically going to use this as a springboard and then say, well, in 2nd edition we had these changes and these additions and stuff like that. At least that's what I'm planning to do anyway. So... With that, I would like to thank you all very much for listening, for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you will make your way safely back to 2023 or if whatever year it is when you listen to this. And I also hope to see you again next time. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard. Know ye now, the time of mortals has come to an end.